3: Niña de largos silencios Y ya me querías bien Tu mirada buscaba la mía Jugabas a ser mujer Pocos años ganados al tiempo Vestidos de piel i
4: I spent 15 years of my career trying to create a digital notebook, remarkable.
5: Since I was fool enough to find romance, I'm trying to convince myself this is just a day was
6: When I awoke, dear, I was mistaken, so I bowed my head and I cried. You are my sunshine, my only sunshine, you make me happy when skies are gray. You'll never know, dear, how much I love you. Please don't take my sunshine away
7: radio and this is the B we didn't have any uh, this was not a typical selection um, I started out with La De Nina mujer a beautiful song about a man and his daughter or a, a parent and his or her daughter dedicate that to my daughter and then we got into Sweet Sue, just you, another young woman who's celebrating her birthday tomorrow. Actually, happy birthday to you. And you know you are. Sweet Sue, just you with the Ben Benny Goodman Orchestra. And then we had some Joni Mitchell with Sucker Dance from her album Mingus, and finally the great Johnny Cash singing You Are My Sunshine, one of my mother's favorite all-time song. Welcome to Labor and Love Radio. You're here because you want to be, I hope. Labor and Love, where we tell you how it is. One person gets a dollar they didn't work for. Someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. That's how capitalism works. You don't have a seat at the table, negotiating table that is, where you work. You're on the menu. They're talking about you behind your back. And never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor... It's only a waste of time, Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Well, it seems like we haven't been on for several weeks. Last week we had technical glitches, so we're going to play some of the stuff that we had on last week to sort of catch up. As always, it'll be by, for, and about working people. And what exactly have we got? Labor history in two minutes. Radio Labor, our World Labor Review. Spooky campaign ads from the bituation room. The labor beat. What's on the labor beat this week? Who's doing what to whom? Because that's what capitalism is, y'all. An excuse for some people to steal from others. Pomarello and Hold That Line, sort of an invention of a new labor song. Beyonce and the Dixie Chicks singing daddy lessons. Something for all you young women to listen to. Poem of the Week, we've got a couple of poems this week, somehow autumn seems to inspire poets. We've got Dylan Thomas, we've got John Keats, we've got Jack Kerouac. Poem of the Week. The U.S. is the most overworked nation in the world? Huh? Huh? And election day is rapidly approaching. We've got the Pissed-Off Voters Guide here. The San Francisco League of Pissed-Off Voters. By, for, and about working people. And what happened to that little baseball bar on the corner of Bryant and 16th? Okay, this is... This is the B, and one of the first things I want to do is go over our credos. What are our credos? Let's see. Our credos are things that we share and believe on Labor and Love Radio. Credos. Okay. What's one credo we got? Pity the nation. Pity the nation whose people are sheep and whose shepherds mislead them. Pity the nation. Whose leaders are liars, whose sages are silenced, and whose bigots haunt the airwaves. Pity the nation. It raises not its voice except to praise conquerors and acclaim the bully as hero and aims to rule the world by force and by torture. Pity the nation that knows no other language but its own and no other culture but its own. Pity the nation whose breath is money and sleeps the sleep of the too well-fed. Pity the nation. Oh, pity the people will allow their rights to erode and their freedoms be washed away. My country, sweet tears of thee, sweet land of liberty. That's the late Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Here's Robert Reich, and this is something we should always keep in mind as workers. I remind you that the richest 1% own half of the stock market the richest 1% own half of it, and the richest 10% own almost all of it. So when Trump brags about the stock market, he's not talking about the economy that 90% of Americans inhabit. Keep that in mind. From time immemorial, we've listened to, oh, the Dow is up or the Dow is down. Who cares? has nothing to do with us. That has people who are making money off us. Utah Phillips writes, kids don't have a little brother working in the coal mine. They don't have a little sister coughing her lungs out in the looms of the big mill towns of the Northeast. Why? Because we organized. Because we broke the back of the sweatshops in this country. We have child labor laws. Those were not benevolent gifts from enlightened management. None of this stuff was. They were fought for. They were bled for. They were died for by working people, by people like us. Kids ought to know that. There's got to be labor education to teach kids why they don't have to go to work without learning anything, without school. That's why I tell these stories, damn it. No root, no fruit, he says. Okay, let's see. So those are some of our credos And we've got others. Immigrants? What about immigrants, huh? Can I tell you a secret? I don't even care if they're immigrants, undocumented immigrants in this country. Without Social Security numbers, they aren't privy to the welfare people claim they get. Vast majority of them are normal people trying to live a better life. This whole wall, deport the illegals, bullshit. Is just the 1% convincing the working poor to blame a subset of the working poor for the fact that they're all poor. Oh, it's immigrants who are coming here, taking all the jobs. Yeah, yeah. Those immigrants are invading us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a non-issue. This is a non-issue that people have invented to blame other people, other working people. Due to the vast income inequality that we're poor and resource price inflation, combination with wage stagnation, use your brains You're not poor because of another poor working person. Because you're not being paid enough money. Your wages aren't high enough. Huh? How about that? So you're not that into politics? Your boss is. Your landlord is. Your insurance company is. And every day they use their political power... Keep your pay low, raise your rent, and deny you coverage. A. Hey, it's time to get into politics. So those are some of our credos here on this show. And let's just get to it. Start with our... Let's see if we can... We'll start with our Radio Labor show. This is our worldwide labor report. And every week we bring it to you except when they go on They say they go on leave, huh? Radio Labor this is a collective of people from labor unions all over the world. And it's not happening. What have we? Modern slavery rises to 50 million. Modern slavery, which includes forced labor and forced marriage, has increased in the past five years to 50 million worldwide. Radio labor. How about some labor history? October 18th is the date, walking in their shoes.
8: I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1980. In what the Chicago Sun-Times called the biggest labor management war of the last two decades. The battle for union recognition at 10 J.P. Stevens textile plants ended in victory. The Amalgamated Clothing and Textile Workers Union led the union's campaign. At the time, J.P. Stevens was the second largest textile manufacturer in the nation. The Amalgamated Clothing and Textile Workers Union's campaign targeted 10 of their southern plants. Seven of them were located in Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina. The company refused to recognize the union. In 1976, the AFL-CIO declared a boycott against the company. But Stevens distributed so many brands that it was difficult to make the boycott effective. The next year, the union began a new tactic, a highly organized corporate campaign. The goal was to put pressure on the banks and financial institutions that dealt with J.P. Stevens. That March... 600 individuals bought one share of stock in the company. Hundreds of representatives from union groups, religious institutions, and community organizations supporting the union attended the company's shareholder meeting in New York City. They came to directly confront management. Outside, 4,000 protesters marched in solidarity. In 1979, the struggle inspired the classic labor film Norma Ray. Sally Fields won an Oscar for her portrayal of a woman who helped bring a union to the cotton mill where she worked. The real-life Norma Rae was Crystal Lee Sutton, who was fired for her union activity. She went on to become a union organizer. The union's success at the 10 Southern plants was considered a major victory for the cause of labor. However, Stevens remained vehemently opposed to unions at their other locations. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com.
1: Of your blood is as black as the coal, it's dark as a dungeon and damp as the dew.
8: For danger is double, and pleasures are few. For Another song about the life of a miner was this song titled Nine Pound Hammer. It's a long way to Harlan, it's a long way to hazard,
1: just to get a little brew, just to get a little brood. When I'm long gone, just make my tombstone out of
8: number nine cold, oh number nine cold. Perhaps Travis's most famous song was this one. Sixteen tons. Now some people say a
1: man's made out of mud, but a poor man's made out of muscle and blood. A muscle and blood, skin and bones. A mind that's weak and a back that's strong. You load sixteen tons. And what do you get another day older and deeper in debt? St. Peter, don't you call me, cause I can't go. I owe my soul
8: to the company Like store. what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. On this day in labor history, the year was 1999. That was the day that 270 workers from the Embassy Vacation Resorts in Maui voted to join Local 5 of the Hotel Employees and Restaurant Employees Union. Local 5 got its start in Hawaii in 1938. Back then, it was called the Hotel and Restaurant Employees and Bartenders International Union. Today, it's a local of Unite Here. Local 5 was part of the surge of union organizing in Hawaii during the 1930s and 1940s. Starting in the 1950s, tourism became increasingly important for the Hawaiian economy. From 1940 to 1957, sugar production jobs on the island declined from 35,000 down to 17,000. With the rise of air travel, more and more jobs opened up in the tourism industry. Today, tourism is the largest gross domestic product of Hawaii. It represents 21% of the Hawaiian economy. Visitors spent $14 billion on the islands in 2012. Yet, the service sector workers who made this growth of the tourism industry possible often work long hours for low wages. Many resorts and hotels fight any effort to bring in a union. Such was the case at the Embassy Vacation Resorts. In 1998, the employees voted against forming a union by a count of 126 to 86. The union challenged the results of the election and won. They held a second election the next year. During their organizing drive, four employees were fired at the resort. In 2003, the National Labor Relations Board found that the employees had been let go for their union activities. The company was ordered to reinstate the workers. These legal decisions were victories by the service workers of Hawaii in their fight to win union protection. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. I'm Rick Smith.
7: Okay, so there's our labor history um, hit for the week. All over the world, all over the country, all over the city. (laughs) workers are standing up workers are expressing themselves maui 1999 merle travis patco let's hear patco
8: again miss this that. One. labor history in two. <laughs> on this day in labor history the year was 1981 The United States Federal Labor Relations Authority voted to decertify the Professional Air Traffic Controllers Organization, or PATCO. The PATCO union had gone on strike earlier that year over wages, hours, and working conditions. President Ronald Reagan demanded the workers return to work or be fired. When the union decided to stay out, he fired more than 11,000 workers. Federal law prohibited federal workers from participating in a strike. Yet until Reagan, the law was not strictly enforced. The three-person Federal Labor Relations Authority sided with Ronald Reagan. Originally, their decision was two votes to one against the union. But less than two weeks later, the last member changed his vote in support of decertification. The union attempted to fight the decertification with a court appeal. Their efforts failed. In one of labor's great ironies, Patco had actually endorsed Ronald Reagan for president. Leading up to the 1980 presidential election, Ronald Reagan had written a letter to the president of the union. In the letter, he promised, you can rest assured that if I'm elected president, I will take whatever steps are necessary to provide our air traffic controllers with the most modern equipment available and to adjust staff levels and work days so that they are commiserate with achieving a maximum degree of public safety. He also pledged a spirit of cooperation between the president and the air traffic controllers. Within a year, the union had been decertified. What happened at PATCO sent a chill through the labor movement of the United States. Since then, other Republican politicians, like Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker, have sought to undermine public sector unions. In doing so, they often invoke the memory of Ronald Reagan and Patco. Like what you hear? Check out more at Labor History.
7: Okay, I wanted to hear that one because Patco, the Patco strike is is often cited as a, a turning point in uh, relations with. the federal government by federal sector unions but it turns out that they had even endorsed him and uh Reagan maybe egged on by uh, hardline right-wing politicians advisors uh, I- I don't think Reagan was any, really thought much about uh, uh, policy and things like that. He was more of a, a front, a front man. So that was a big defeat, 1980, 81, and uh, there's cr- critiques of the way the unions handled it too, of course. Sign here says "Fire Reagan, not Patco members." Okay, let's get on here. Um, Wanted to play our radio labor. Let me go with our radio labor. It wouldn't come up before, but we got it on
2: radio labor.
9: This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, October 21st, 2022. I'm Mark Belanger. In the report this week, why teachers are needed to save the planet from climate change. The new ILO Director General starts his fight for social justice. The Labor Start report about union events and rapping. This is Radio Lago.
10: Teachers globally recognize the urgency of transforming education systems to respond to the climate crisis.
9: That is Johanna Yara ostrand a vice president of Education International's executive board, representing the European region. She is also the president of the Swedish Teachers Union. Education International, EI, is the global union which represents 33 million teachers and other education workers around the world. Ms. Yaga Ostan was speaking at a recent EI conference in support of the global union's Teach for the Planet campaign.
10: We are faced with an existential crisis like we had a battle for our lives and the education sector must play its role in the struggle to protect both the current and future generations and sustain our planet. By taking a lifelong learning approach from early childhood education to adult and higher education, learners will be empowered to contribute to solutions. With our global Teach for the Planet campaign, Teachers have been calling for immediate reforms to ensure that education systems are fit for purpose in the context of the climate emergency. Already, children, students, teachers and communities, especially girls, people with disabilities, indigenous peoples, and those in countries who have contributed the least to causing climate change, are being severely impacted. The effects of climate change, such as heat waves, floods, and extreme weather events are threatening students' right to quality education and teachers' right to decent working conditions. Our manifesto on quality climate change education for all outlines a vision where all education institutions are safe, climate resilient, and sustainable. Every student receives quality education in the context of climate crisis through well-funded public education systems that prioritize climate education in curricula, teacher training, and policy, and that every teacher is supported and, and able to teach for climate action, providing students with skills, knowledge, and attitudes to live sustainably, adapt to climate uh, impacts, and hold policymakers accountable to reduce carbon emissions and center climate justice. We are therefore thrilled about the development of the Greening Education Partnership. This is a unique opportunity for governments to commit to bold, comprehensive action to make their education systems climate smart. And on behalf of of teachers across all regions, I urge every government today to commit to the partnership and earmark the necessary resources to enable green education. A crucial component of the partnership is to commit to building teachers' capacity and readiness to teach for climate action. This is critical. A recent EI-UNESCO survey showed that approximately 90% of nearly 60,000 teachers surveyed believed it was important to teach about the severity of climate change, but only 40% felt confidence to teach about the topic. And to provide quality education in the context of the climate crisis, teachers of all subjects and grades need quality training for climate education, both through pre-service and professional development opportunities. Teachers also need the enabling conditions and support to provide climate education. This includes quality teaching and learning resources, opportunities for collaboration and innovation, professional autonomy, and time.
9: You can find more information about EI's Teach for the Planet campaign at ei-ie.org. The newly installed Director General of the International Labor Organization, Gilbert Hondo, has declared social justice to be his primary goal. The ILO is the UN specialized agency focused on matters of work in the world. At the core of social justice in the world is the development of social protection plans, such as unemployment benefits and maternity leave. In an interview conducted at the ILO's headquarters in Geneva, Mr. Hunbo described his commitment to social justice. He mentions the ILO's tripartite structure, which brings together as partners governments, business groups, and labor unions.
11: While I grew up in um, circumstances that are certainly far from being the ideal, um, for me it's okay. What is not okay is that 50 years later, 60 years later, we still have the same um, challenges in a lot of parts. Uh, all of the world has made um, great progress. We still a lot of challenges that are fundamentally unacceptable. And that being said, um, it's going without saying that um, through the whole tripartite approach, we, we need. For me, it goes back to the push for a better social justice. If we start am looking at it, as you said, not only the the the, the, the divide between uh, um, poor and rich, uh, poor countries and the uh, and the rich countries, but also within uh, within uh, countries. So. To me, the the policy-making level, be it at the national or the international, the multilateral, the trade agreements, the the foreign direct investment, and the whole supply chain, we have to ensure that social justice remains at the core and therefore contributing to the fight against inequalities. So for us uh, and for me, the universal social protection, making sure that in every country Every citizen has access to a minimum package of protection is going to be crucial. It's a very big daunting task that we really need to study and that is going to be a core element of my term.
9: As part of its campaign to promote social justice, the ILO has produced a video on the subject.
12: The COVID-19 pandemic has exposed deep-seated inequalities and significant gaps in social protection everywhere. The ILO's latest World Social Protection Report shows recent developments with new data and statistics. It reveals that only 46.9 percent of the global population are covered by at least one social protection benefit. This means that barely 18.6 percent of unemployed workers receive unemployment benefits. Only 26.4 percent of children and less than 29% of vulnerable persons are covered. A mere third of working-age people have access to sickness benefits by law, and only 33.4% of persons with severe disabilities receive disability benefits, while 44.9% of mothers with newborns receive a maternity benefit. 33% of the population are not covered by a social health protection scheme and 22.5% of older persons still receive no pension. However, the pandemic provoked an unparalleled social protection response as a primary tool to protect people's health, jobs, and incomes. But with an uncertain recovery, further social protection spending to ensure social stability is crucial. Nearly all countries, irrespective of their development level, have arrived at a crossroads and face a choice. Whether to pursue a high-road strategy of strengthening their social protection systems, or a low-road strategy of chronic underinvestment, minimalist provision, and succumbing to austerity. Establishing universal social protection is possible, as realizing the human right to social security for all is the cornerstone of a human-centered approach to finally obtaining social justice.
9: Here with his report about union events is Labor Start correspondent Derek Blackadder.
4: This week our top story section included links to coverage of the ongoing violations of labor rights in Qatar as the start of the World Cup looms. We also carried news of the impact of inflation on workers' living conditions across Europe and the opening of nominations for this year's Arthur Svensson Prize for Labor Rights. And we had coverage of union-provided safety training for French journalists assigned to cover mass demonstrations, capacity-building training for Iraqi unions, and of the general strike in Palestine. For our Working Women page, our volunteers found news items about the push for workplace menopause policies in Ireland's banks, how Brazil's Bolsonaro government directly caused the deaths of 4,500 healthcare workers the vast majority of whom were women, and how the gendered nature of nursing is helping define the New Zealand nurses' strike. A small sample of the stories appearing on our health and safety page in Newswire this week includes the intervention by the South African Nurses Union in the criminal trial of a man accused of murdering one of its members, demands by a Canadian union for a criminal investigation into a fatal oil refinery explosion, and a new campaign to end workplace violence and harassment in Indonesia's textiles industry. Our current photo of the week is of one of 60,000 Mexican telecom workers who launched their first strike in 40 years last July. The walkout is just one of thousands of actions being taken by unions around the world as inflation continues to erode wages. Labor Start hosts online solidarity actions at the request of unions around the world. This week we'd like to highlight urgent appeals for online solidarity with trade union activists in the Philippines, Canada, Myanmar, Belarus, and Kazakhstan. If you can spare just a few seconds, you can do your part in these struggles by sending a solidarity message. Look for details of these and other campaigns on our site. This is Derek Blackheader from LaborStart, reporting for Radio Labor.
2: So,
13: uh We overlook the worth and the significance of those who are not in in the so-called big jobs. But let me say to you tonight that whenever you are engaged in work that serves humanity and is for the building of humanity, it has dignity and it has worth.
9: work is
14: Gentlemen, Beyonce.
15: You know, every now and then, when I think of inspiration,
3: I think of the two teenagers. You perform. I never in my life saw a woman so powerful, so fierce, so fabulous. In those. Areas. I want everyone to stand up. We're celebrating Tina Turner tonight. We're gonna take the beginning of the song and do it. E
5: Thank you
7: Okay, of course, that was Beyonce and her tribute to the great Tina Turner with a song by Creedence Clearwater Revival about working along the river. Pumped a lot of tain down in New Orleans. Before that, we had Tom Morello with Grandson talking about Hold the Line, his version of an old labor song, a picket line they're referring to. And before that, we had a rap, um, hip-hop group singing about all the workers and we're going to follow that up with a, in a minute with a song by a group, a favorite group of mine called Las Cafeteras. But let's see what we got to get on here. Um, labor history in two, done. Speedy campaign ads a little later. Labor and love radio, the labor beat. And uh, Poems to Autumn. So let's see. Get on the labor beat. This is a pict- uh, story that we covered last week, but I want to make sure everybody gets it, because this is an amazing Life for the medieval peasant was certainly no picnic. We're talking about mostly farm people in uh, Europe in what's called the Middle Ages, medieval. Maybe 900 up to uh, 1500, 1600. His life was shadowed by fear of famine, disease, and bursts of warfare. His diet and personal hygiene left much to be desired. But despite his reputation as a miserable wretch, you might envy him one thing. His vacations, plowing and harvesting, were backbreaking toil. But the peasant enjoyed anywhere from eight weeks to half the year off. Now, all this, of course, is speculation. You'd have to be back there at the time to see how his life works. Uh, Peasants, serfs were virtual slaves in a lot of places. The church, mindful of how to keep a population from rebelling, enforced frequent mandatory holidays, Weddings, wakes, and births might mean a week off, drinking ale to celebrate. And when wandering jugglers or sporting events came to town, the peasant expected time off for entertainment. There were labor-free Sundays, and when the plowing and harvesting seasons were over, the peasant got time to rest, too. In fact, economist Juliette Shore found that During periods of particularly high wages, such as 14th century England, peasants might put in no more than 150 days a year. For the modern American worker, after a year on the job, she gets an average of eight vacation days annually. So, parenthetical expression in addition. 14th century England, workers were in great demand because of the plague. The plague had killed one-third of all the people in Europe. So peasants, working people, could really call the shots more than generally speaking. It wasn't supposed to turn out this way, the insider says. John Maynard Keynes, one of the founders of modern economics, made a famous prediction that by 2030, advanced societies would be wealthy enough that leisure time rather than work would characterize national lifestyle. So far, that forecast is not looking good. There was a time when social philosophers took a look at the developing technology and predicted that workers would be getting more and more leisure time, and what were we gonna do with it? Well, that of course has not happened because bosses, capitalists, have decided to use that time for more, to make more money, figure out more ways to get rich, In the same way, we were supposed to get a peace dividend after Soviet Russia fell apart. What happened to that peace dividend? They used it to make more war. What happened? Some cite the victory of the eight-hour day, 40-hour work week over the punishing 70 or 80 hours a 19th century worker spent toiling at toiling as proof that we are moving in the right direction. But Americans have long since kissed the 40-hour workweek goodbye. Shore's examination of work patterns reveals that the 19th century was an aberration in the history of human labor. Workers fought for the eight-hour workday. It wasn't trying to get something old, radical and new. Rather to restore what their ancestors had enjoyed before capitalists and electric light bulbs came on the scene. Go back 200, 300, 400 years and you find that most people did not work very long hours at all. In addition to relaxing during long holidays, medieval peasant took his sweet time eating meals and often included time for an afternoon snooze. The tempo of life was slow, even leisurely, the pace of work relaxed, note sure. The ancestors may not have been rich, but they had an abundance of leisure. Fast forward to the twenty first century, and the US is the only advanced country with no national vacation policy whatsoever. Railroad workers recently turned down a contract offer that offered them one paid vacation day off. One sick day off. And they turned it down. Why? Everyone goes, oh, that's, why'd they turn it down? Well, what's that? One day off? Many American workers must keep on working through public holidays, and vacation days often go unused. Even when we finally carve out a holiday, many of us answer emails and check in, whether we're camping with the family or trying to kick back on the beach. Consequences of constantly working. Study after study shows that overwhelm, overworking reduces productivity. On the other hand, performance increases after a vacation and workers come back with restored energy and focus. The longer the vacation, the more relaxed and energized people feel. In Europe, where workers average 25 or 30 days off per year, Politicians like French President François Hollande and former Greek Prime Minister Antonis Samaras sent signals that the culture of longer vacations is coming to an end. But the belief that shorter vacations bring economic gains doesn't seem to add up. Beyond burnout, vanishing vacations make our relationships with family and friends suffer. Our health is deteriorating. Depression and higher risk of death are among the outcomes for our non-vacation nation. Some forward thinking people have tried to reverse this trend, like progressive economist Robert Reich was argued in favor of a mandatory three weeks off for all American workers. Congressman Alan Grayson proposed the Paid Vacation Act of 2009, but alas, the bill didn't even make it to the floor of Congress. Check it out. The Insider, Business Insider, the average American worker takes less vacation time than a preth, than a French peasant. Okay, this is the B, and you're listening to Labor and Love, and um, Autumn. Autumn seems to energize. Poets. So we have three white poets with us, and we'll pick up on some other poets next week. Um, first one is John Keats' To Autumn, and here's how it goes. Little background music. Season of mists and mellow fruitfulness, close bosom friend of the maturing sun, inspiring with him how to load and bless with fruit the vines that round the thatchy. You bend with apples the mossed cottage trees and fill all fruit with ripeness to the core. Swell the gourd and plump the hazel shells with the sweet kernel. You set budding more and still more late flowers for the bees. Till they think warm days will never cease or summer has o'erbrimmed their clammy cells. Who hath not seen thee oft amid thy store? Sometimes whoever seeks abroad may find thee sitting careless on a granary floor. Thy hair soft-lifted by the winnowing wind, or a half-reaped furrow sound asleep, drowsed with a fume of poppies, or thy hook spares the next swath and all its twined flowers. And sometimes like a gleaner thou dost keep steady Thy laden head across a brook Or by a cinder press With patient look Thou watchest the last oozings, Hour by hour Where are the songs of spring? I, where are they? Think not of them Thou hast thy music too while barred clouds bloom the soft dying day and touch the stubble plains with rosy hue. Then in a wailful choir the small gnats mourn among the river sallows borne aloft, or sinking as the light wind lives or dies, and full-grown lambs loud bleat from hilly-born. Hedge crickets sing, and now with trouble soft Red-breast whistles from a garden croft, and gathering swallows twitter in the skies. "Home to Autumn" by John Keats. Listen to this one now. October in the railroad earth.
1: There was a little alley in San Francisco, back of the Southern Pacific Station at 3rd and Townsend, in red brick of drowsy, lazy afternoons of everybody at work in offices. In the air, you feel the impending rush of the commuter frenzy. As soon, they'll be charging en masse from market and Sansom buildings on foot and in buses and all well-dressed through working man, Frisco, of walk-up truck drivers. And even the poor grime be marked 3rd Street of lost bums, even Negroes, so hopeless, and long left east. And meanings of responsibility and try. But now all they do is stand there spitting in the broken glass, sometimes 50 in one afternoon against one wall at 3rd and Howard. There's all these Milbray and San Carlos neat necktied producers and commuters of America and steel civilization and rushing by with San Francisco chronicles and green called bulletins, not even enough time to be disdainful. They've got to catch 130, 132, 134, 136, all the way up to 146 till the time of evening supper in homes of the railroad earth when high in the sky the magic stars ride above the following hot shot freight trains. It's all in California. It's all a sea. I swim out of it in afternoons of sun hot meditation in my jeans with head on handkerchief or on brakeman's lantern or, if not working, on book. I look up at blue sky of perfect lost purity. I feel the warp of wood of old America beneath me and I have insane conversations with negroes in second story windows above and everything is pouring in the switching moves of box cars in that little alley which is so much like the alleys of Lowell and I hear far off in the sense of coming night that engine calling our mountains but it was that beautiful cut of clouds I could always see above the little SP alley puffs Floating by from Oakland, or the gate of Marin, to the north or San Jose South. The clarity of Cal break your heart. It was the fantastic drows and drum hum of lum mum afternoon, nothing the do. Old Frisco with end-of-land sadness. The people the alley full of trucks and cars of businesses nearabouts. Nobody knew or far from cared who I was all my life. 3,500 miles from birth all opened up and at last belonged to me in great America. Now it's night in 3rd Street. The keen little neons and also yellow bulb lights of impossible-to-believe flops dark ruined shadows moving back of torn yellow shades like a degenerate china with no money the cats in annie's alley the flop comes on moans rolls. the street is loaded with darkness blue sky above with stars hanging high over old hotel roofs and blowers of hotels moaning out dusts of interior the grime inside the word in mouths is falling out tooth by tooth Reading news, tick-tock, big clock, with creek chair and slant boards and old faces looking up over rimless spectacles bought in some West Virginia or Florida or Liverpool, England pawn shop long before I was born. And across rains, they've come to the end of the land sadness, end of the world gladness. All your San Francisco will have to fall eventually and burn again. But I'm walking. One night, a bum fell into the hole, the construction job where they're tearing a sewer by day. The husky Pacific and electric youths in torn jeans who work there, often I think of going up to some of them, like, say, blond ones with wild hair and torn shirts, and they say, go to apply for the railroad. It's much easier work. You don't stand around the street all day. You get much more pay. This bum fell in the hole. You saw his foot stick out. British MG, also driven by some eccentric once backed into that hole, as I came home from a long Saturday afternoon local, the Hollister out of San Jose, miles away across verdurous fields of cream and juice joy, here's this British MG backed and legs up, wheels up into a pit, and bums and cops standing right outside the coffee shop. It was the way they fenced it, but he never had the nerve to do it, due to the fact that he had no money and nowhere to go. know his father was dead, know his mother was dead, no, his sister was dead, know his whereabout was dead, was dead. But then at that time also used to lay in my room on long Saturday afternoons listening to Jumpin' George with my fifth tokay, no tea. Just under the sheets, laughed to hear the crazy music. Mama, he treats your daughter mean. Mama, Papa, don't you come in here, I'll kill you, etc. Getting high by myself in room glooms. An all wondrous knowing about the Negro, the essential American. Out there, always finding his solace, his meaning in the Fellaheen street. Not an abstract morality. And even when he has a church, you see the pastor out front bowing to the ladies on the make. You hear his great vibrant voice on the Sunday afternoon sidewalk full of sexual vibratos saying, why, yes, ma'am, but the gospel do say that man was born a woman's womb. <laughs> no, and so, by that time I come crawling out of my warm sack and hit the street, and I see the railroad ain't going to call me till 5 a.m. Sunday morning, probably. For a local out of Bay Shore, in fact, always for a local out of Bay Shore. And I go to the whale bar of all the wild bars in the world, the one and only third and Howard. And there I go in and drink with the madmen. And if I get drunk, I get. The girl who came up to me in there one night, I was there with Al Buckle, and said to me, You wanna play with me tonight, Jim? And I didn't think I I didn't think I had enough money. And I told this to Charlie Lowe, and he laughed and said, How do you know she wanted money. Always take the chance that she might be out just for love or just out for love, you know what I mean, don't be a sucker. She was a good-looking doll, and she said, how would you like to ool your cool with me, mon? And I stood there like a jerk. In fact, bought drink, got drink drunk that night in the 299 Club, I was hit by the proprietor, the band breaking up the fight, before I had a chance to decide to hit him back, which I didn't want to do anyway. Not on the street, Tried to rush back in, but they had locked the door and were looking at me through the forbidden glass in the door with faces like undersea. I should have played with her.
7: Jack Kerouac with his uh, October and the Railroad Earth. We got one more. Home in October by. The Welsh poet, Ellen Thomas, read by Richard Burke. Was my thirtieth year to heaven,
16: woke to my hearing from harbour and neighbour wood and the mussel pool and the heron priested shore. The morning beckon with water praying and call of seagull and rook and the knock of sailing boats on the net webbed wall. Myself to set foot that second in the still sleeping town and set forth. My birthday began with the water birds and the birds of the winged trees flying my name above the farms and the white horses, and I rose in rainy autumn and walked abroad in a shower of all my days. I tide and the heron dived when I took the road over the border, and the gates of the town closed as the town awoke. A spring full of larks in a rolling cloud and the roadside bushes brimming with whistling blackbirds, and the sun of October summery on the hill shoulder, Here were fond climates and sweet singers suddenly come in the morning where I wandered and listened to the rain-ringing wind blow cold in the wood far away under me. Pale rain over the dwindling harbour and over the sea-wet church the size of a snail with its horns through mist and the castle brown as owls. But all the gardens of spring and summer were blooming in the tall tales beyond the border and under the lark-full cloud. There could I marvel my birthday away, but the weather turned around. It turned away from the blithe country, and down the other air the blue altered sky streamed again a wonder of summer with apples, pears, and red currants. And I saw in the turning so clearly a child's forgotten mornings when he walked with his mother through the parables of sunlight and the legends of the green chapels and the twice-told fields of infancy, that his tears burned my cheeks, and his heart moved in mine. These were the woods, the river, and sea, where a boy in the listening summertime of the dead whispered the truth of his joy to the trees and the stones and the fish in the tide, and the mystery sang alive still in the water and singing birds. And there could I marvel my birthday away, the weather turned around, and the true joy of the long dead child sang, burning in the sun. It was my thirtieth year. To heaven stood there then in the summer noon, though the town below lay leaved with October blood. Oh, may my heart's truth still be sung on this high hill. In a year's
7: okay, that was uh, Richard Burton reading a poem by Dylan Thomas, his birthday, 30th birthday. Okay. Let's see if we can find Las Cafeteras. We had a poem earlier, a song, uh, a song celebrating working people of all sorts. And this one, Las Cafeteras. Celebrate their parents, trabajador, trabajadora. They're talking about their moms and dads who work so hard to make a better life possible you look around you'll probably notice that's what your parents did. Okay, that was trabajador, trabajadora, um, men and women workers, uh, a tribute by Las Cafeteras to their parents, who work so hard, as many parents do, to make their lives better, make better the lives of their children. All right, well, we got uh, a couple more features here. But I would like to get on the habituation room right before that. The U.S. is the most overworked developed nation in the world. We work too many hours. If you don't believe so, check out the following data points that compare us to our peers around the world. Americans are often referred to as lazy, but we are far from it. We work hard, we are productive, and we work a lot of hours with very little paid holiday, vacation, and parental leave to show for it. Certainly a a fact that around 1970, 1980, that steadily arising worker productivity and workers' wages stopped rising together. Productivity went up, so businesses started making huge profits, but worker wages were very sluggish, went up. You know, single-digit percentages while worker productivity exploded. We work a lot of hours, very little paid holiday, vacation, and parental leave to show for it. Let's break down some of this data, and we're on uh, something finance. Website. According to the Center of American Progress, in 1960, only 20% of mothers worked. Today, 70% of American children live in households where all adults are employed. When all adults are working within a household with children, that's a huge hit to the American family and free time in the American household. The U.S. is the only country in the Americas without a national paid parental leave benefit. Averages over 12 weeks of paid leave anywhere other than Europe and over 20 weeks in Europe. Zero industrialized nations are without a mandatory option for new parents to take parental leave. That is, except for the U.S., at least 134 countries have laws setting the maximum length of the work week. The U.S. does not. According to BL Time Use Surveys, BLS, full-time employed females in the U.S. work an average of 8.33 hours per day, while full-time employed males work an average of 9.09 hours per day. According to OECD stats, U.S. workers work an average of 1,767 hours per year versus an OECD country average of 1,687. This is 435 more hours per year than German workers 400 more hours per year than United Kingdom workers, 365 hours more per year than French workers, and 169 hours per year more than Japanese workers. Of all OECD countries, only the workers in Chile, Mexico, Israel, Korea, and Costa Rica average more hours worked per year. Is what I was referring to about productivity statistics. Productivity per American worker has increased four hundred and thirty percent since nineteen fifty. One way to look at that is it should take less than one quarter of the work hours, or ten hours per week, to afford the same standard of living as a worker in nineteen fifty. Or to say standard of living should be over four times higher. Is this the case? Obviously not. Someone is profiting and it's just not the average American worker. There's no federal law requiring paid sick days in the U.S. The U.S. remains the only industrialized country in the world that has no legally Mandated annual leave. In every industrialized country except Canada and Japan and the U.S., which averages 13 days per year, workers get at least 20 paid vacation days on average. In France and Finland, they get 30 an entire month off every year. And then it goes on to talk about the impact of too much work. More work leads to more stress and a lower quality of life. that time to unwind, take care of your home, spend time with loved ones, enjoy our hobbies, connect with friends, and generally live a more balanced life. Stress is the number one cause of health problems mentally and physically. there are a few things that stress us out on a consistent basis, more like work does, especially when it takes away from all the other things that life has to offer. Our companies fairly ruthlessly fire and lay workers off Elon Musk is going to lay off 3 quarters of the workers at TikTok, takes over the company. Is it TikTok? Whatever company he's going to take over, he's going to fire 3 quarters of the workers. American workers tend to undervalue and are insecure about the work they provide. Merits of the free market and meritocracy are continually drilled into our brains. American workers don't fight for our working rights, by and large. Oh, I pardon me, I just got a message um, from Vita, who tells me, what was it? Send it again, will you, Vita? Um, Elon Musk is taking over. Um, Twitter. Pardon me. Thank you, Vita. Twitter. Elon Musk uh, is renewing his bid to buy Twitter, and he has vowed to fire 75% of 7,500 workers. So that's, if we do that real quick, three-fourths times three-fourths, that's uh, over half. We're talking about three-quarters of 7,500. We're talking about 5,500 people losing their jobs just at a whim of one person The decline of the union has led to less paid time off and other leave benefits. The U.S. has the third lowest trade union participation rate of OECD countries on record, just 9.9% of the workforce, and that rate has been declining for decades. Cultural value of money. We love money. We want more of it. And we think money can buy happiness. And the more we work, the more we get paid. Or so the faulty theorem goes. Been drilled in our heads that we're lazy compared to emerging work counterpart workers in India, Mexico, China, and other parts of Asia. Who isn't? And what is our mental image of the work environment in those locales? validate those fears, our jobs are being outsourced to the cheap labor in those countries. In reality, the U.S. is one of the top country in productivity per person. Check it out, because this is just part of it. There's a whole discussion about our attitude towards our work, which is not good. So next week we'll have to deal with the uh, Pissed Off Voters Guide and the uh, habituation room. And it's freaky, freaky presentation of uh, election ads. Right now it's time to go. Labor and love where the labor meets the road. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, Someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a, have a seat at the table, that's uh, the negotiating table where you work. You're on the menu. and Never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor,
16: I mean you.
7: have to do something about our sound might be the computer might be the studio here but i guarantee you next week our sound will be up to scan. please stay tuned now for my buddy scott walker and his show flat black plastic where he plays the very best and discs.
17: I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy, shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs
7: think I'm funny, Daryl.
17: Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons?
7: Oh, shit. From time to time, I've given it a thought or two.
17: You know, if you go to Joke Workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even going to be jerks about it. Dale, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things, dude, you before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop.
14: john wessek here i have a new poetry collection on amazon here's the title poem the shaman in the library naked except for a loin cloth ritual scars and streaks of red clay he attends the staff meeting bowl haircut back straight face impassive why is he here No one knows. Since the library opened, he's pushed the loaded book cart and replaced Suzanne Summers and Gwyneth Paltrow in the diet and exercise section. Trembling patrons pay late fees promptly when he stands by the circulation desk. A few parents complain their teenagers shadow him chasing rumors of hallucinogenic ayahuasca vines hidden in the botany section, and after the singed carpet incident management forbade cooking fires. No more fresh rabbit meat, only packets of microwaved cassava. He pricks his fingertip at Shift's end and fills out his time sheet with human blood. It's a good life. His employer provides health insurance and a retirement plan. But when the wild parrots come to strip fruit from nearby trees, he remembers the land of his birth, his vision quest, fasting to the point of death and how his spirit animal came to him. He remembers inhabiting the jaguar's body, its savage strength and the power he gained, power to take life and heal. Free from culture and convention, he hunted at night. The heart-pounding chase, the taste of wild boar's blood.
0: I was just leaving the theater.
14: It'd be hard to believe. Uh, the
2: dude minds, man.
18: Black Block a novel about protest from Sanjuro. A sample. The walk from Union Square to the bar is a long way for a drink, so you want a few stopovers. You get warmed up at Lefty O'Doul's, an old-time tavern with memorabilia and a menu from another century. Then a market street dive to rub elbows with the hoi polloi. Next is a Folsom Leather Bar. The dark, goth soundtrack is a refreshing change from the usual jukebox anthems, but you must avert your eyes lest you observe gentlefolk in flagrante. That means fucking. Tonight, none of these places are open unless looters are broken in. The city is shut down because of the riots. Thank you. Find me at sandrorider.com, and Black Block is on Amazon.
19: Of Subliminal SF, visual and auditory mind control. Graphic design, physical merchandise, live music promotions, go www.subliminalsf.com for the most amazing t-shirts you've ever seen. Graphic design for every need and live music promotion. At some of the best bars in San Francisco, that's Subliminal SF, visual and auditory mind control. Go to subliminalsf.com now. No
18: Safe sex is more than just avoiding STIs and pregnancy, no matter what you're into. Make sure that you and those around you feel safe, comfortable, and are having a good time. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio.
19: October 9th through 16th, 2022. The 7th Annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival is coming to you, San Francisco and beyond. So many venues this year. Atlas Cafe, Madam Race Car, The Bar on Dolores, El Rio, Baby Blues Barbecue, OMG, and the Alameda Comedy Club, as well as Emperor Norton's Booze Land and Mutiny Radio 28 shows all week. Get your tickets at Eventbrite and for free on Sunday the 16th. It's a block party, part of the Phoenix Day block party. You or livable city who brought you Sunday streets. We're going to have a block party. We're going to have the bacon, bacon food truck, art vendors, 40 comedians from all over the United States outside, ready to make you laugh. Please come out to the 7th Annual. Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival at eight different venues October 9th through 16th, 2022.
2: See you there.
17: The National Lawyers Guild is dedicated to the need for basic change in the structure of our political and economic systems. They seek to unite lawyers, law students, legal workers, and jailhouse lawyers of America to function as an effective political and social force in the service of the people to the end that human rights shall be regarded as more sacred than mere property interests. For more information about your legal rights, how to obtain legal assistance, or to donate, please contact the National Lawyers Guild at nlgsg.org. That's nlgsg.org. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio.
15: Fap, acid, and fapping, fapping, and acid, acid, and fapping, fapping, and acid, fap fap fap, 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 acid. Thank you. That song is called Acid and Fapping.
0: My name is Breakfast, and I'm running for Chancellor of the United States of America. For too long, we have gone without a Chancellor who is willing to take bold.